I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. There's no doubt in my mind that he didn't do it. And I've been saying that and told these investigators this for 35 years. I'm talking to Dave's old friend, Megan. She was actually in Rainbow Village the night of the murders and remembers hearing the gunshots. We heard the gunshots, and the gunshots were maybe about a quarter of a mile away, I would say. And International was right there, standing around talking to us when we heard the gunshots. There's no doubt in my mind that he didn't do it. We tried to tell them that, but nobody would listen to us. Me and Dave, we called the Berkeley police, we called, and they were just like, look, you know, we got the guy. They're trying to tell us the bad things he'd done in his past. And, and it's like, well, that's not, that doesn't pertain to this. I, I really don't think that International had anything to do with it. I'm pretty sure that these other two guys or whoever, maybe somebody different, but, you know, somebody else had something to do with it, not, not International. And he spent his entire life in prison for it. I didn't even realize that they were arresting him, you know, or what was going on for maybe it was like a week or something before it all started unfolding. And by then we had gone back to Chico. Now you tried to stand up for him as much as possible, you know? You know, you know how the appeal process is and the whole judicial system is so screwed up. I don't think at that point we knew anything about Bo or Weston. I think it was more like at that point we we're just trying to tell, look, International was right there with us, you know? Well, he had no defense whatsoever. This attorney never called one fucking witness. He did get an appeal, but I mean, he spent 30 years in prison, 35 years of this. That breaks my heart. I mean, really, he spent 35 years in prison over this, you know? Of all the people I've talked to thus far, Megan appeared to be the closest to the victims. So I started inquiring about Greg and Mary and how they knew each other. Mary and Greg just met right then. Greg was, was in Chico and came with us down to the shows. And they met at the shows or something, you know? And I and they were hooked up, kind of. They just met, like, maybe two or three days before that or something. And they were definitely hooked up, though, together, you know? He was just a nice guy, you know? He, he came from the same place I did. You know, he was just a nice kid was really, really fucking sad. And what about Bo? How did he know Mary? People always said, well, Mary used to go out with Bo, but was kind of freaked out by him. He was Mary's ex-boyfriend, Bo was. If this was true, it changes everything. Could it have been a crime of passion, jealousy? These all sound like more realistic motives. This statement had to be noted. But out of respect, I don't want to just speculate on Mary's love life. So much stuff came out about Bo and Weston. 
I think nobody has talked to Bo about this, to be honest with you, as far as I know. But people have talked to Weston about it, trying to find out, you know, stuff about Bo. And he, he always stuck up for Bo and said he was never anywhere near that place. I'd be cautious if I were you, you know. I'd just be careful. Nineteen seventy nine, coming up on New Year's, the dawn of the new decade, the eighties. The Grateful Dead were set to play their annual end of year hometown celebratory run of shows. Five nights at the Oakland Coliseum, and as usual, there were complications. When life looks like Easy Street, there's danger at your door. There was always danger at the Dead's door, though band members seldom dealt with these hassles. More or less they endured them or caused them. Since the Grateful Dead's inception as a band in 1965, their career was typically complicated by some sort of hassle or another. In the late 60s, it was the heat brought down upon the band by law enforcement in and around Haight-Ashbury for their open stance against authority. And there was the stinging rebuke of 60s idealism at Altamont, a gig they were supposed to play in support of the Rolling Stones, but smartly bailed on shortly after arriving at the Northern California Speedway, engulfed in a mess of hippie disorganization and bad, violent vibes. Their instincts proved correct when 18-year-old Meredith Hunter died at the end of a Hell's Angel shank later that night. And there was the drug bust in New Orleans in 1970, set up like a bowling pin and all that and the earlier bust in San Francisco, as well as Jerry and Robert Hunter's bust in 73 in upstate New York. There was the glorious or disastrous, depending on who you talk to, tour of Europe in 1972 that produced the excellent live album aptly titled Europe 72. But there were also brushes with perfection, like two focused rootsy classic long players released prior, Working Man's Dead and American Beauty. The band found more freedom as they founded their own record label, a subsidiary of United Artists Records, and released other uneven but otherwise inspired albums like Wake of the Flood, From the Mars Hotel, Blues for Allah, Steal Your Face, Terrapin Station, and Shakedown Street. The latter with its incongruent disco-inspired title track that somehow works perfectly. And of course, there was constant roadwork year after year that resulted in a growing, dedicated audience whose passionate fandom was compelled as much by the band's anti-authority ethos of freedom, peace, and mellow good vibes, an ethos that created a genuinely unique experience at the band's live shows, as they were by the band's trademark improvisational approach in concert to say nothing of their long-running commitment to psychedelia and psychedelic drug use that for some band members continued on and off stage as much as it did for fans of the band. If a man among you got no sin upon his hand, let him cast a stone at me for playing in the band. The Me Decade was a roller coaster of ups and downs for the Grateful Dead as they tried navigating their growth as a band and as a business during a time when the music industry itself was expanding rapidly and undergoing its own set of growing pains. 
Like most rock stars, the Grateful Dead self-medicated with illicit drugs, sought to escape through suspended adolescence, and the results were a shambolic mess that included, among other things, the death of one of their founding members, Ron Pigpen McKernan, the death of his sometimes girlfriend slash friend of the dead, Janis Joplin, the chaotic entry of two new band members, Keith Godchow on piano and his wife, Donna, on backing vocals. The two would ride a wild dragon of drugs, alcohol, public spatting, and domestic abuse throughout their tenure with the band during the decade. There was Bob Weir's girlfriend who shot herself. There was Bill Kurtzman's unhinged antics on tour in Europe, dosed on acid, lost on the streets of Germany, trying to hotwire a moped, getting frustrated and heaving the machine through a storefront window. There was the embezzlement of the band's fortune by percussionist Mickey Hart's own father. And then there was Mickey's departure from the band and shame in his eventual re-entry. There was the bad juju believed to be brought down upon the group because of the Tibetan drum made of human skull that Bear Owsley had given to Mickey. And there were wild Manhattan nights spent with original cast members of Saturday Night Live, mountains of cocaine and rivers of alcohol consumed by the band and even more by their rough and rowdy road crew. And of course, there was the introduction of heroin into the dead circle, most disastrously cottoned to by their de facto leader, Jerry Garcia. All this chaos, in part, formed the band, their management and crew, and in one way or another, when melded with their freewheeling, easygoing nature, informed every decision, big or small, including how to solve the current issue at hand brought on by the unfamiliarity of the venue, a venue they'd played, but never for their heavily anticipated annual New Year's runs, which inspired more intense efforts by larger numbers of Grateful Dead fans to gain access to the shows which sold out well in advance. The Dead's New Year's shows were not to be missed. They were the high point of the year for Deadheads, even though the band had long since tired of promoter Bill Graham's schlocky showbiz antics and domineering personality but for whatever reason were too cowed to pass on the gigs and thus ended up repeating the yearly ritual until Graham died some 11 years later. And the issue at the moment was twofold. Number one, what to do with the Grateful Dead fans who would refuse to go home after the first night show? And number two, how to spare the band's management the hassle of breaking down the group's merchandising tent every night only to have to set it back up again a couple hours later when the morning comes. One of Graham's men had a solution for both problems, and the Grateful Dead passively agreed, as was their easygoing nature. The solution would kill two birds with one stone. Allow the small group of 10 to 12 deadheads to camp out overnight in the small park adjacent to the venue where the merch was, under the agreement that they'd have to quote-unquote guard the merch tent from five-finger bandits. Of course, the deadheads accepted the offer. They spent the night, built a fire, smoked grass, traded road dog stories and songs on acoustic guitars, grabbed a couple winks and woke up to the California sunshine to watch their favorite band do it all over again the next night. Except that on this night, word had spread about the overnight party on the premises, so a few more deadheads joined. And the same thing happened on night three and then again on night four. So by the end of the five-night run at Oakland Coliseum, the venue's park had become a mini-overnight commune of hundreds of deadheads, and voila, one of the most enduring aspects of Grateful Dead culture was born. The tradition of deadheads camping out at shows. For a deadhead to be able to spend the night in the same location as the band's next show was too good to pass up. It created a draw for the band that was unique from any other band's draw. 
It created a connection with the audience that really no other rock and roll band before or since would have. I mean, maybe Fish, but come on, Fish. And for Deadheads, it created a potentially endless party. It compelled them to travel with the band and camp out night after night. It emboldened Deadheads. Deadheads, just like Mary Joya and Greg Niffin, who would chase miracles following the band on the golden road to unlimited devotion, which, it turned out, was no simple highway. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Do you ever wish you could become a detective and help find the clues to the case? How about all of that in a mobile game that you can take anywhere? In June's Journey, each scene leads to a new thrilling storyline. Uncover the mystery of June's sister's murder and find out about scandalous family secrets. The gameplay lets you find hidden clues as you investigate a murder mystery. Escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Let your imagination run wild when decorating your island estate and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. Whether you're craving a good mystery or looking for an escape, you can immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story taking you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. Each new scene takes you further through a thrilling murder mystery story that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. I travel so much while working that I personally love to play it while sitting around airports with all that free time I have. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. I would have never dreamt that I would be sitting here talking to you guys about this 25 years later. It just blows my mind. A central figure in the investigation of Mary and Greg's murder was this man, James Barnes. In the mid-90s, he was hired by Ralph's defense team during the appeal process. He was on the ground, talking to witnesses, following up leads, doing all the work that Ralph's public defender didn't do. It was my job to support Ralph's legal defense. I was the person responsible for investigating this. I was identified as someone who had the appropriate sort of age and background to be able to connect with these transient Grateful Dead following witnesses. I was about the right age and I think uh, might have been perceived as a deadhead at the time. I did not rise to the level of any of the folks I wound up connecting with, but I had been to a few shows. I was tapped to try and locate some people that had knowledge about this event. That's going to be an interesting challenge. The nature of that community, it's sort of transient. There's a drug culture going on, so there was a lot of wariness on the part of the people that I was trying to reach out to. Who is this guy who's working for the federal government trying to investigate this case? What's he up to? I 
had met with Ralph Thomas quite a few times, going to death row for the first time and sitting down in a, a cage the size of this half of this room with this guy who was let in in shackles and unlocked and sat down across the table from me. Ralph had a, a kind of a dark history. So I was highly skeptical. I mean, Ralph scared me. And as I got deeper and deeper into this case, I had to remind myself that the burden of proof is reasonable doubt. I had serious doubts and reservations about conducting a defense that had the potential of releasing back into the world someone who may well have actually committed this crime. I just tried not to make any assumptions and to just follow the story where it went. He always maintained his innocence. He was adamant about it. I took everything I heard with a grain of salt. You know, he was a human being and he was largely a, a decent human being who I had a lot of compassion for, who was adamant about the fact that he hadn't committed this crime. I just started encountering one person after the other who said, I think this other guy did it. And it wasn't just one or two people, it was three or four or five or eight or 10 people that all seemed to have the same concern. That was compelling to me. The sheer number of people scattered all about the country a decade later who felt sufficiently concerned about this that they were willing to take the time to sit down and talk to me about it. I mean, the main narrative was there's someone else that might have done it. It was really that simple. Jim Chafee, who was the public defender that was representing International, simply failed to adequately investigate that. During that time, the Alameda County Public Defender's Office had a very well-staffed and very well-equipped investigative group. They had the resources, they had the people in this era of heightened awareness about systemic racism. You know, even your public defender, one would hope would be less prone to make those kind of assumptions, can make assumptions. Our legal system is built on the notion that you cannot convict someone of a crime without establishing that they've committed that crime beyond a reasonable doubt. And if you fail to investigate it, where there's clear statements being made that there are other witnesses that believe someone else did it and you fail to investigate that, an injustice has been done. He spent the rest of his life in jail for a crime he did not do. And while I found him to be a little bit scary, I have no reason to believe that he necessarily was gonna repeat the crimes that he had been convicted of. You know, it's a tragedy, it really is. In this case, there were no fingerprints, no DNA evidence, no gunpowder residue, and no murder weapon was ever found. But Ralph did own a gun, a Remington 44 Magnum bolt action rifle. On August 15, 1985, before the murders occurred, Ralph had fired this gun in Rainbow Village. He shot a Canadian flag one of his neighbors was flying. When Ralph woke up the next morning, he told a fellow resident in Rainbow Village that his gun had been stolen, and he hadn't seen it since he fired it the day before. According to expert testimony, this gun could be the murder weapon. The question is, who pulled the trigger? You know, that gunshot was one of the things that made me think maybe there's some truth to this, right? The fact that he had fired that weapon earlier in the evening meant that other people would have known 
that there was a firearm present and knew that he had possession of it. So it was plausible to me that someone might have taken it from him and used it. There was a rumor that Bo had some romantic interest in Mary and that it was a crime of passion where Bo killed Mary and Greg, the guy that she was with, out of some kind of jealousy. What could you find on Mary and Greg? What was their relationship? I found some people who said they believed there was some romantic connection between them, and I found some people that said that they believed there was some romantic connection between Mary and Bo. But it was all just word of mouth. I was very agnostic about the death penalty coming into this. I definitely was not opposed to the death penalty. I arrived at the conclusion through this work and a lot of thought that I, am, I actually am opposed to the death penalty. And I'm opposed to it as much for practical reasons as anything. Once you kill someone, there's no reversing that. How the technology has changed and the ability to you know, answer questions that couldn't get answered or something changes and you realize you made a mistake, you can't reverse it once you've killed someone. Not only that, but because the stakes are so high, you have to do what we did, which is spend 20 years leaving no stone unturned. It cost a fortune. Just from a pure economic point of view, it doesn't make sense economically, it doesn't make sense morally. I've, I've come to that conclusion for a society to kill people. Lock them up. Let them live with what they've done for the rest of their lives. I have a 28-year-old who was quite young at that time. This is what made me think of this. Mary's mother. Losing a child is one of the most devastating things that you can experience in a lifetime. So I've heard, and I, I believe it to be true. I thought about, what if someone did this to my son? What would I do? I said it then, and I'll say it now, I'd kill him. If someone harmed someone I loved and killed them, I would kill them on the spot if I had the chance. This is the other thing, though. I think at some point, if I had time to sit with it, I'd probably find some compassion for that person. And I'd think, something's wrong with him. The point is this. I can understand how Mary's mother would feel a sense of satisfaction and closure by having the person that she believes killed her daughter be dead. When Ralph passed in 2014, Mary's mother, Patricia, spoke to a local newspaper about it. She said, quote, you don't wish bad on anyone, but this guy, he was not a good guy. I think the world is better off without him. Since the late 80s, Mary's mother was an active leader in a support group called Parents of Murdered Children. She dedicated the rest of her life to offering support to other parents who experienced the same loss that she did. Ralph Thomas indeed had a dark history, and he was there the night that Mary and Greg were murdered. But it appears that Bo and Weston were there too. And Bo's history, through several first-hand accounts, is starting to look a little checkered as well. I haven't thought about this for a long time, and I'm, I'm getting chills just thinking about it. At some point, I became increasingly confident that International had not committed this crime. It's never too late for justice. I think it might be extremely difficult, barring a confession. If there were a confession, it would mean a lot to me. This took a big piece of my life. 
At this point, I'm really interested and curious to see where this goes. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. There was still one person I hadn't been able to reach. His name was Randy. He was the owner of the bus in Rainbow Village that Mary and Greg were staying on that night, called the Dead On. Robert gave me his number, and for several weeks he was hard to get a hold of, but eventually I made contact and we arranged to meet. He was staying in an RV at a friend's place out in Oregon. I pulled up to a large wooded property in the middle of nowhere. Hello. There was a small house and a few different RVs off in the distance. I was greeted by a guy who I assume was a friend of his. Uh, Randy's in the bus, most likely, because you, you really wait looking forward to seeing you. Hey, Randy! You in there, bro? Alright. Interview time. Hey, everybody. Inside, in the outdoors, put the toilet seat down. <laughs> okay. Uh, Hi, guys. Hey. There you go. Okay, well, come on Thank in. You Watch your step on that thing. Okay. I'm Payne. Hi, Payne. This is Mike. Mike. Hi, Mike. Uh, come on in. Randy was a kind older man who invited us into his RV. I don't feel that it was truly settled. I don't feel that International got a decent defense, and I, I feel like there's still some secrets there. International had a public defender lawyer that didn't investigate it at all, particularly. I mean, he didn't try to interview me said he couldn't find me. In the Grateful Dead scene back in the 80s, Randy was pretty well known. He used to travel the country, show to show, with loads of people in his bus called the Dead On. 
For a few weeks in 85, he had his bus parked in Rainbow Village and was very familiar with the community there. We had a little society there, you know, everybody kind of knew everybody. There was a couple of dozen people that were permanent residents. And uh, it had a wire gate. I mean, it was a wire fence and a gate, but the gate kind of stayed open. And there was a parking lot outside for day visitors and turning around. It, it was a good scene though, you know, people were happy, they felt free there. I was traveling all the time and I'd come in and hang out with people and that was kind of an open house for my friends, you know, that if they needed a place to coming through to spend a night or two. It had incredible amounts of room in it. I mean, it was like illegally long, you know, with a back porch and a big greenhouse sheet of glass. It was probably 12 feet by eight feet. It was a skylight, you know, huge open space. And it was quite the clubhouse. On the night of the murders, Randy wasn't there. A family member of his was sick, and he was driving across the country to see her. The first news story he heard about the murders was on the radio. We were out of Reno. Uh, you know how the radio fades in and out when you get out in the middle of Nevada and you can't hardly get any radio stations? We're dialing around, and we got a 11 o'clock news. Randy Turley was found murdered in Rainbow Village in Berkeley tonight. Like, what? What the fuck? (laughs) They incorrectly reported him as one of the victims, likely because it was his bus that Mary and Greg were staying on. I believe that's how they came up with my name, was that I was the guy that had the bus, and they assumed that I was the guy that got killed off the bus. Having spent a good amount of time in Rainbow Village, Randy was pretty familiar with Ralph Thomas. International had been generally a really nice guy, and opened all kind of people just coming through and wasn't, you know, any kind of angry, triggered kind of person. So it didn't, it didn't seem right to me. International had a public defender lawyer that didn't investigate it at all, particularly. I mean, he didn't try to interview me, said he couldn't find me. Being black is definitely a, a strike against you in terms of the court. They're already ready to assume that it's true. I'd known Bo since 82. He hadn't really done anything to me directly, but he just seemed sort of a calculating, I guess. I don't know if I'd say he's manipulative or, or what, but it didn't seem like a happy hippie. I didn't feel good about him. And I, and I don't really have any reason other than just this basic behavior, just a feeling. I had heard that he had dated this girl where they were a couple and that he was jealous of her. That's something that a, that a lawyer should at least have investigated. He knew Weston personally too. Weston had come up and stayed at my house in Western Tehama County when I lived out there. And we were kind of friends. He kind of looked like Buffalo Bill with a blonde, long beard and hair down the middle, and we, we ran in similar circles. He just dropped out of sight after this happened, and I went looking for him, and I couldn't find him. I was trying to find Wesson to talk to him. I was trying to find him to see if there was any new evidence or something to help ground my opinion. Stuff about Bo, what he might have said or did. Why did you think that Weston would know that stuff? 
Well, I, I believe Wesson was, was with him down in Santa Cruz, and he, and he came up with him. He had been with Bo down in Santa Cruz the night before. He came up with him. I was trying to find Wesson to talk to him. I figured, you know, him being kind of a hippie, he'd be around college campuses or coffee shops or stuff. We printed up a bunch of flyers with his picture on it. I had a picture of him and I made a wanted poster. I said, if you know of him, you know, have him call me. I put my cell at the bottom and laminated him and thumbtacked him up in all these coffee shops and bookstores. Made a conscious effort. I, I had like 50 posters. I said, you know, I, I need to speak to my friend and Wesson, please call me. Thumbtacked up a bunch of stuff. To no avail, I never got a call back on any lead from it. He had disappeared. Didn't come to shows, didn't come to people's houses. I mean, he, he pretty much lit out for the territories. I was trying to find him, and I was asking Brown about him, and he had disappeared. I haven't talked to him 35 years. I'd heard speculation that Weston disappeared because he didn't want to be queried about what he knew. I, I can't say for sure, but you know, he might be concerned that he might be considered an accessory or something. You know, it, it's that thing where if you're in a car and somebody does something, then you're somewhat responsible. If he did know something, he should have spoke up immediately. Whatever damage to international is done, you know. I would have liked to have found Weston and had talked to him directly myself, because I feel like if I was there in the room with him directly, that we're all enough friends that, that he'd either tell me the, the truth as much as he knows it, or it'd be clear to me that he's not telling me everything. It's all circumstantial, but that's, that's still how I've, I mean, my gut feeling is, is it's highly more likely that Bo was involved in international, and that's, that's how I've felt all along. What are you going to do looking forward from this? I'm going to try and find Weston, too. So I started with the basics. Online white pages. Standard name searching. And I found several numbers to try. We're sorry. You have reached a number that has been disconnected or is no longer in service. you have reached this recording in error, please check the number and try your call again. Hi, this is Weston with a better painter and also with Water King. Got him. Like pretty much everyone else in this case, he too was in Oregon. So it was time to tack on a few more sky miles. I called Weston several times, but no answer. It would ring all the way through, and it was him on the voicemail, but he just never picked up. I even tried calling from different numbers to see if he'd pick up that way. Nope, nothing. I found one physical address for him, 
I guess it was time to do a little door knock meet and greet. Not my favorite way of doing things. In half a mile, take a slight left turn to merge onto I-84 East toward the Dells. Says we're 20 minutes out. I'm usually fine. Up until right before we get there. It's like that last mile feels like a hundred. Oh boy. At the stop sign, turn right onto Northeast 188th Avenue. Then the destination is on your right. Oh man, I'm not super pumped. He has no idea I'm coming. And I'm honestly starting to blank on what I'm even going to ask him. We pulled into a small neighborhood, a one-story house in the very back. There was a car parked out front, so someone was definitely home. As I knocked on the door, I peered inside the window a bit and saw someone walking around. Hello. Hey. I'm looking for Weston. Okay. Did he used to live here? Really? I was dubious at first, but it wasn't him, unfortunately. I came a long way to talk to Weston, and it's been over 30 years since he's talked to anyone about this case. It was time to get creative. After an extensive, time-consuming online search, I found him again. He was selling a ladder on the app LetGo. I was 99.9% .9 sure it was him. It had to be. So I sent him a message and waited. He wants to meet me, but he thinks I'm interested in buying this ladder, not talking about this 30-year-old murder case. This is not usually how I do things, but he was clearly avoiding me everywhere else. We arranged to meet at a storage unit. This was starting to feel a little sketchy, to say the least. I made sure to get there early, and parked facing the entrance so we could see him. Oh, this is him. This is him. It was him. He was riding a bike and gave me a nod. Wesson? Yeah. Hey. Full disclosure, I'm actually not here to buy a ladder. I'm hoping you're the right Weston Sutter that I'm looking for. Yeah. There's only one I could find. Yeah. I'm doing a documentary about Mary Joya and Greg Niffin from Rainbow Village. Holy cow. Thanks for checking out Dead and Gone. Dead and Gone is written, hosted, and produced by Payne Lindsay and myself, Jake Brennan. Check out my other music and true crime podcast, Disgraceland, about musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly, as well as Payne's other shows, Radio Rental, Atlanta Monster, and Up and Vanished. Dead and Gone is a production of Tenderfoot TV and Double Elvis and brought to you by Cadence 13 and executive produced by Donald Albright, Payne Lindsay, Brady Sadler, and myself. 
This show is produced by Mike Rooney, mixed by Cooper Skinner, music by Makeup and Vanity Set, with additional music services by Ryan Spraker, edited by Sean Cahalan, production coordination by Matt Bowden, copy edited by Pat Healy, writing assistance by Taylor Bettinson, cover design by Matt Mills for mattmillsart.com. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum and Grace Royer from UTA, Ryan Nord, Jesse Nord, and Matthew Papa from The Nord Group, Chris Corcoran and the Cadence 13 team, Beck Media and Marketing, Station 16, and the teams at Tenderfoot TV and Double Elvis. Thanks for checking out Dead and Gone. Episodes drop every Thursday. Please make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or give us a shout out on social media with the hashtag Dead and Gone, and you might win a free Dead and Gone show poster designed by Nate Gonzalez. Thanks for your support. Thank you.